All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of EM Over Easy. We have the three amigos here, Andy, Drew, and Tanner, for a th- the third episode of Clinical Grinds. Today, I will be taking you guys through a case of mine that I had as a resident. Uh, now that I'm an attending, I can say that as a resident. It's kind Congratulations. Of Thank you. Congrats bum, to you bum, as bum. well. Andy, you're still an attending. Congrats. We're working on demotion, but that's for a later episode. Okay, so this is a case coming in at a community hospital. We had an encode from EMS that basically said we have a 14-year-old male coming in who is hemorrhaging from his trach. We don't get any vitals. We don't get anything else. That was basically it. Very short, sweet encode. I know when I hear stuff like that, there's the two extremes. This is either going to be the most benign hemorrhage I've ever seen in my entire life, or it's going to be something crazy. What do you guys think when you get those kind of just brief EMS encodes? I want to know if I'm... The question is whether I heard the encode or that I'm hearing about the encode, right? Because it totally changes things. Sure. You get those encodes where you just hear the person's voice and it doesn't really matter what they say. You know whatever's coming through the door is going to be potentially disastrous and, and you're amped up. If I actually heard the encode and they sounded excited and somebody told me they were hemorrhaging from a trach, I would probably go to the bathroom um, and get a new pair of shorts and debate whether I wanted to come back into the emergency department to actually treat the patient because nothing is going to go well. For me, it's uh, the immediate, how bad is this going to be? And so I automatically start going looking for stuff, uh, depending on where I work. If it's a place where I normally work and I know where the stuff is, but for me, I'm like, I got to go get stuff. And sometimes you, even if you tell people what you need, they're not going to give you what you want. Stuff. So, for me, stuff. so like, stuff. I mean, yeah. things that would be really useful here would be, um, what, a Foley catheter and um, uh, a beta HCG test kit and a... Uh, so a suture kit, a bougie if I have to take it out. A new trach if I have to replace it, and then some kind of either form to get the bleeding to stop, whether it's a pressure dressing, whether it's a hemocom dressing, whether it's TXA, something like that. But to me, I automatically automatic start thinking about the stuff I'm going to need to solve this problem. So I immediately call pharmacy and I order a liter of quick clot. A liter of a liter. Clot. It's kind of like a liter of cola. It's for a cop. Can we actually order liters of stuff? <laughs> Why not? You can you can order whatever I, I, you want. I've never really thought about whether or not they provide it to you what or I not. Want. Is a oh my gosh! Story. Somebody please try to order a liter a liter of cola <laughs> on their next shift just to see what happens. I ask for liters of cola all the time on my shift, and everyone <laughs> no, no, just looks at me like I'm crazy. Order, and then if not, just put a nursing order in and see what happens. Can I put in parentheses? It's for a cop. <laughs> it's for. A cop. <laughs> Anyways, back to the potentially sphincter tightening encode here from EMS. So that was that was. Perfect lead-in. That was going to be my next question. What are you, you going to get set up? We have roughly three to five minutes to get ready for this possible crazy hemorrhage versus, you know, it, it could be something really simple. Uh, and we did the, kind of this exactly what you said. We, we went to the trauma bay area, essentially, and caught, got a couple of nurses. We had the charge nurse there, called respiratory therapy, and then opened up the difficult airway cart. Well, that's what you need to do. So anytime you have a sick patient coming in, you want to mobilize your resources early. It's a lot easier to pull back and say, hey, thanks for everyone for coming down. doesn't look like this is that bad. We're good versus the opposite where you don't mobilize the resources. People are not on their way or already in the department when the patient's there. And all of a sudden you need them and you need them now. You needed them 30 seconds ago and you're just calling them in so you have that delay. So always better to cancel the alert, whatever alert it is in your hospital, to get everyone mobilized than it is to be late in activating the alert. And I think that's true with most of what we do in emergency medicine. It's, it's better to call and to mobilize resources early than late. I agree 100%. That's exactly what uh, my thought process is as well every time something like this comes up. So EMS arrives. We have, they're, they're wheeling into the bay and the, 
the first thing I see is that this is obviously a chronic medical problem kid. It's very, very obvious that this kid has lots of chronic problems. You can see a trach. There is dried blood all over his shirt. I don't see any active bleeding going on, but I also don't see a lot happening. I see a, you know, there's a bag attached to the thing. So bring him in, transfer over the thing. First thing I did was just try to check you know, the basic vital signs. The bagging, the respiratory therapist is like, I can't bag anything. And we feel for a pulse. We don't feel a pulse at all. So I'm not sure when this kid lost pulses, but he did. Instantly, we start CPR. The other provider that was with me decided to go and talk with family and try to get a little bit more of a history while I started the initial resuscitation. What would you guys' first approach be to something like this? A trach that is in place, but obviously not bagging at all. So we think we know what this is already, right? This is a eroded fistula. We now have arterial bleeding through the trach site, and and it's easy to identify what the issue is. The, The problem in these situations is how to correct it and correct it quickly. And if we were to the point that we're already coding or we're not getting a pulse, I mean, obviously this has gone, this has gone south, gone south fast. Um, the, the only thing you can do is get pressure. But the problem is it's also your only airway. So how do you ventilate somebody through a hole that you now need to stick something into to occlude bleeding on? And, and it, you are going down a rabbit hole that is almost impossible to get out of with these. Yeah, this was definitely not a very straightforward scenario. In my head, I was thinking, okay, this kid is arrested from either one of two things. It's either hypoxia or hypovolemia. In my opinion, at this point, just because I don't see any active hemorrhage, doesn't mean it's not going on inside. I'm thinking this is hypoxia first. I got to get an airway of some sort. At this time, the other provider was able to come back into the room and kind of give a little history from mom. A quick breakdown was basically this his kid with cerebral palsy. He's had a chronic trach for years. Most recent replacement was in March. So essentially about six weeks earlier. Did you guys try to de-obstruct the tube? Did you guys put suction down? Did you guys try to yeah, pass so something initial through? attempt, Yonker doesn't fit in there or anything like okay. that. Thankfully, respiratory therapy was really quick at kind of creating a little tubing attachment to the suction in the room and we were able to put suction down and able to suck out a bunch of dried, clotted blood. Okay. The minute we were able to do that, put the bag valve mask back on, we get some respiration. We're able to, we're able to bag. It's not perfect, but it's better. Once we've been bagging for approximately 30, 40 seconds, we get a pulse back. seems that things are kind of stabilizing out a little bit. How quickly can you get this kid out of your hospital? Exactly. That was the <laughs> next question. How quickly can we get this kid to an, a tertiary care center to that take care of this? Because adult ENTs aren't going to do yeah. it. You, know, you don't want to swap it out because you don't want to dislodge a bigger clot that they're going to bleed into their lungs. It's, this yeah. is truly one of those, like, please leave. So at this time, like, his blood pressures are soft. It does seem to appear that he is still actively oozing blood because every so often, bagging gets a little hard. We put, a, put, put our suction back in, clots, and yeah. we're pulling out some clots, some, and then some bright red blood, too. We're definitely in a life flight scenario trying to get this kid out there. We're already in the process of calling them, but we don't know what else to do to kind of maybe potentially stabilize this. So we put out some calls really early. We called anesthesia and palm crit and said, hey, we got a kid down here with a trach that's bleeding. We need some help. In that time, we started talking about what are some other possible options do we have? What can we do to maybe stabilize this airway a little bit? Whether it was maybe putting an ET tube in from above, sliding it past the trach, inflating the cuff to maybe protect that airway so it's not bleeding down in there, or adding a little more pressure there. Do we even consider removing the trach and putting in one that's cuffed? 
because this was an uncuffed trach. Yeah. yeah. And I like it how you actually called your resources because this is not something that even with advanced airway training and emergency medicine, most of us, one have ever dealt with or two, even really troubleshooted a pediatric non-cuffed trach. Because in adults, this happens. It's cuffed. You blow up the cuff. You're done. I, I would feel significantly. You hope you're done. Yeah, I hope I'm done. But and I would feel significantly better swapping out a trach in an adult because I've done that before. But in a kid, it's a completely different scenario. So. Yeah, major pucker factor on this one, and, yeah. and there's not, there's no right answer. I think there's a lot of wrong answers in how yeah. in how you manage this, but there's not a right answer in what you do. And the good news is you're ventilating now. The bad news is there's still complications, and I have this feeling that there's more to come because you wouldn't just talk about this. No, that's it. This story's over. All right. Well, hey, great episode, guys. Can't <laughs> wait to talk to you next time. Uh, EM over easy, guys. Out. No, no, no just kidding. Uh, so. Yeah, we, we kind of had like a maybe a, a 10 minute window here where things seemed to kind of calm down. I was able to put in a, a quick fem line so we had access multiple ways, started getting some blood uh, transfused, and consultants started coming down, talking with them. And ultimately, we decided, you know, putting an ET tube in above risks rupturing or, or making something worse and doing the same thing with the exchange in the trach, we might lose our only airway that we have that's already in place. We Absolutely. know it works as long yeah. as it's not obstructed. So we liked it against both of those. And then right as we were kind of getting comfortable and saying, okay, well, maybe he's just going to ooze a little bit, get to the helicopter, and hopefully get to an OR somewhere, it all broke loose again. We had literally a volcano of blood coming, shooting out of the trach. Now it's, now it's real again. I now understand the look of deer in the headlights that EMS gave me when they walked in. Even though he wasn't bleeding then, I'm sure this is probably what they initially presented to. Now what do we do with an hem- actively hemorrhaging bleeding trach? Yeah, this this is like the true impossible scenario because you don't want to apply too much pressure top because you don't want to cause necrosis. You don't want to again take it out because it's work because if it's working, it's working. I mean, did you guys try to swap it out? No, so you guys left it alone. We we definitely did not try to swap it out. So at that point, we have anesthesia there. We have uh, palm crit there, both of who are trying to figure out a solution as well. And then cardiothoracic surgery showed up, and so we have now five providers sitting around this patient trying to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, me being the lowest on the totem pole, I'm like the one managing the airway, which is essentially just suctioning and trying to get any sort of air for this kid uh, to prevent him from coding again. Unfortunately, he does start coding again. We lose pulses. We have to start CPR compressions. And then all of a sudden somebody says, well, let's call GI. Maybe they can scope him and see if we can figure out a different avenue to get down there. Like it... Things just started getting thrown out there. Like, we're, we're getting a lot of thoughts, and it, it was getting very complicated. Yeah, and, and it's awesome to have all those resources, but at the same time, you still have to have the direction. And that's what you risk with having that many high-level providers, right? So as the EM physicians, I think, I mean, obviously, we, we give ourselves a lot of stock. We're able to hold on to a lot of things. But when all of a sudden you have anesthesia there, you have your pulmonary critical care guys, you have cardiothoracic. I mean, these are people that... These are specialists, right? And when they say something about what's going on, you want to give them due credit as to what it is. But they probably all had a different opinion as to how to manage this. And at some point, somebody just has to make a decision. This is what we're going to do. Make it happen. And too many chiefs, not enough Indians is a real risk in this situation, even though everyone has the absolute best interest of this patient in mind as they're standing around trying to figure it out. That's basically kind of how it goes. Kind of to speed up the story a little bit, we had these intermittent episodes of massive hemorrhage, and then it would calm down, the code would stop, he would, we'd, resuscitation would get him back, we'd have a pulse, it, we would all relax. 
And then at one point, I, I literally looked up after we had kind of controlled the bleeding. It stopped. He's, we got good oxygenation again. And I see around the bedside we have anesthesia, palm crit, ENT, general surgery, cardiothoracic surgery, and GI. And you're exactly right. It was just so many thoughts thrown out there. And while everyone was trying to help, nobody had a really good definitive problem. And in the meantime, I'm sitting here trying to manage this airway a little bit and kind of figured, uh, found out that every time we turned his head the right way, it, it stop. stopped bleeding. And then something would happen. He would start to slowly wake up or something like that. And, or someone would accidentally bump and move the, move the bed and his head would turn a little bit. And that's when the bleeding would start again. So essentially, I think what was happening is it would tampon out off if it was turned the right direction. And then if you turn the other way, that fistula or whatever Opens was open that was eroded away just started pulsing out and bleeding like crazy. And so ultimately what ended up happening is we decided to hold this, hold this kid's head in a position. At that point, lifelight had shown up. And our plan to them was essentially keep this kid's head in this position. Hopefully it does not continue to bleed on you in route. If it does, keep suction in there, auction it as best you can, and throw him on his side so that at least one lung will be dependent from all of the fluid that's most likely going down his lungs. Real easy to do in the back of the helicopter, by the way. As Drew would know because he flies. Tanner would not know that because he's never flown. At the time, I didn't know that. I I still know what it looks like inside of a helicopter now. I just didn't fly in it. Did anybody bring up the idea of using a cook catheter and placing it down past, like just into one lung, just bury it, it's in the right lung, oxygenate the right lung? We, th- we, we talked about a lot of different scenarios of how to change it out, maybe okay. put something down to af- like officially get something deep so that we knew we'd be okay for oxygenation, but everyone was extremely nervous just to, to move anything or try yeah. to put anything in there that potentially would create a bigger track. Or, yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't have no idea what the literature is on this, if there is any. Was there a talk about TXA? That's been going through my mind, too. That actually did not come up. That's a good point. Because that's, that's the one thing that hemorrhage. in the back of my head, we have a, we have significant hemorrhage. This is basically a trauma situation. I don't see, I, in, in my head, and again, you know, full, dis, full disclosure, I, I don't know the literature. Somebody might very well tell me that I am kooky as, a, as Cocoa Puffs, and that's probably true, but I, I would be thinking TXA. That's a really good point. Any other thoughts? No, just to me, this the sheer observation that you realize just with rotating the head, just the anatomical position alone, <laughs> saved your saved your bacon. Not something I would have thought about. So kudos. And to you. I'll be completely honest. That was just a, that was a random observation that just came up because it happened multiple times, and it was just like, oh my gosh, I, see, I think I I think I know what's going on here. Yeah. Kind of a wrap up here. So we send the kid to Children's Hospital and makes it there via life flight. Unfortunately, in the ED there it has another massive episode of hemorrhage. They rush him to the OR and. We did not, uh, unable to save him. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate reality of these kind of problems is they're, they are extremely dangerous. They're something that can go south very quickly, and, and they're hard to fix, too. This is not an easy fix because you're dealing with airway and uh, massive hemorrhage at the same time. So um, it, was, it was something that I, I will never forget, and I, I, will, I will never forget the amazing parents. Parents were bedside the whole time, helping out, coaching them through as best they could. And we do, had, do you think that helped? Did it make the room better? I think it made the room better overall, yeah. Right. I, I, I truly think that the... And it, I think it's because the parents were very, very... They were strong and appropriate, which helped keep the room in a good realm. If, if, if they would have been, you know, 
crazy distraughts a distraction, it would not have helped. But they, yeah. they, did, they did a very good job keeping themselves together as best they could. You know, bringing trake supplies, trying to help out in any way that they could, which, you know, from their, their standpoint, is not much. But they did what they could. That's awesome. Um, and, and honestly, I think all of the providers that were there, even though there was a lot of cooks in the kitchen, did a really good job kind of narrowing down our possibilities and our options. We had very few options that we could do at our facilities. We did the best we could and transported as fast as we could. So just kind of some takeaway points from this whole case. I, the, the big thing I wanted to get across was the EMS encode can be one of those tricky things where, like we kind of talked about earlier, make sure that you prepare for the worst because on the off chance it is, you have everything there, you have the resources you need. When, when a strange situation happens and they bring somebody in that you're focused really on like, oh, why is this trach not bleeding? There's a lot of blood everywhere. First things first, ABCs. Check and see if you can bag, check the pulse, that kind of stuff. Start CPR if you need to. And then use your help. It was, it was nice to have those consultants there to rule out some of that simple stuff or if they had any other tricks of the trade that we may not know. Some of these people are super specialists that know very specific things and they may be able to give us a little bit of feedback or input on how to t address something. You know, I got to think from, at the end of the day, from the parent perspective, obviously the, the outcome of this is, is horrible and not something you'd wish for anybody. But for the parents who have been bedside and to have seen everything that you all tried to do with that many physicians, that many resources, there's got to be a little bit of comfort to them knowing that literally you guys threw the kitchen sink at that kid to do everything possible to make it a good outcome. And while the outcome wasn't good, you know, as, as a parent, if I had known that that much effort was put into my kid, you got to take some solace in that. So if there, if there's a silver lining to be had other than the education out of this, I think, I think that's it. And kudos to you guys for having the patient parents bedside i think that's a bold move yeah. and one that is not appropriate all the time but i think in this situation probably the downstream benefits of that are immense yeah it was it was a it, it made sense at the time and i think it really you know in the end was worth it well thank you everybody for critical grind number three thanks uh, for sharing man hopefully uh, you guys enjoy this episode and we will uh see you guys on the interwebs please follow us on twitter facebook all that good stuff we give us some comments if you guys have had similar cases yeah different experiences on how to manage this uh tell me i'm crazy for thinking txa all that good stuff please uh let us know on twitter go to our uh, blog site and all that fun stuff blog site not just blog no <laughs> and not just site blog site you heard it here first guys Did you, have you sprayed this stuff with like smell good? The foam. No, I sprayed it. Maybe it just smells like chemicals. I, that's exactly what it is. I and I like the smell of. Do you sniff chemicals for fun? <laughs> Probably explains a lot about me, doesn't it? it does. He's a huffer. No. Are you no, an actual sniffer? Huff. I do not spray in the bag. And then and then in, you waft I, it. I'm just I'm am a sniffer. Whippets. I like some whippets. I love whippets, so it can generate giant holes in my brain makes more sense for why I don't remember things. Whip it. Whip it good. Dun, 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 dun. Wiki, 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 whip it.